You're listening to the Perfect Man Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Kirk, Sparky, canine connoisseur, and mental health advocate. Hello, friends and strangers. Today, I invite Chris Howe on the podcast, father, husband, firefighter, recovery facilitator, and host of the Authentic Adversity Podcast. Chris, welcome. How are you going? I'm great, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's an honor to be asked to speak on any podcast, and uh, you know I was happy to connect with you, and uh, I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it's uh, pleasure's all mine, man. So I'm uh, real keen to see how this uh, conversation unfolds and what more for we sure. can share with the world. Be awesome. Um, where are you based? So I'm in Canada. Um, I'm about an hour's drive west of Toronto, Ontario. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, a little place called St. Catharines. It's just a, a little, actually, we live right on the on the lake, so it's kind of a little beach town. Um, uh, just, you know, super chill, coffee shops, a couple of restaurants, and, uh, you know, lots of lots of space to, to kind of roam. Yeah, nice. Well, I guess yeah. I, I usually kick it off uh, with this question, well, these questions, and uh, – like to ask what do you do for work and what do you do for fun um okay so for work i guess my official um occupation would be i'm a i'm a captain with the fire department here in niagara falls uh, i've been with uh, the fire department since 2003 uh, so about 20 years now um i also uh, own a tattoo shop with my wife uh, i'm not an artist i just own the shop with her she's the talent i have zero artistic ability not an artistic bone in my body but um as you can see i i, I collect them a little yeah, bit you so still appreciate uh, the art a lot i can say sure of course yeah, you know i've been around tattoos for, since i was 15 years old so uh or like in tattoo shops since i was young like mm. that and uh, um so you know i appreciate it and i just you know happened to meet the girl in my dreams that was a tattoo artist and yeah, uh nice. yeah so um and and then as far fun um so, you know, usually we're traveling. Um, I, I do, I fight boxing and Muay Thai. Um, you know, we, um, we do a lot of, I, I don't know if this would be considered for fun or not, but um, we do a lot of stuff in the recovery world uh, with people uh, recovering from drugs and alcohol and addictions of any sort. So, um, and I do think it's fun. It's, um, you know, it can be fun. Recovery can be fun. So I do, uh, I facilitate some groups. Um, I'm actually right now working on uh, a project with a friend where we're opening a treatment center and that for me, it'll, it'll kind of marry the two, uh, you know, the two things, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll be able to get paid a little bit for it and um, I'll do what I love doing, which is helping other people and, you know, being a part of uh, other people's growth and recovery. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I just love to, I love to, have a have a hand in changing somebody's life because you know people did that for me and you know they didn't expect any money they didn't expect anything back from me other than the fact that you know i take what i learned from them and share it with another person that might still be uh, suffering so yeah wow um, yeah and then uh we got a little nine-year-old at home so he's uh he's my stepson um but uh you know i call him my son his dad's uh his dad's you know pretty far away from us here. So, uh, I'm, I'm kind of the only father figure in his life, uh, you know, on a daily basis. So he keeps us super busy. Um, he's, uh, he's a blessing. 
I never thought that I would, uh, I never thought I would be in a parental role. Yeah. Um, okay. And, yeah. And to be honest, uh, you know, and, and I'll say this, like I, you know, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic for a lot of years in my life. And, uh, I didn't think I was uh, kind of father material. I, I didn't think it was parent material. So to have a, to have a little boy now in, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years into recovery, my own, you know, my own recovery. So, um, to have a little boy that I get to help raise and have a hand in, in his, uh, in his up, upbringing has mm. been really quite an honor and a pleasure for me. Um, and I've been proving myself wrong that I, I can do it. So that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, as a, yeah. uh, my father figure was a, uh, stepdad as well. So look, okay. well, yeah, that's, I just utmost respect to you for taking on that responsibility, mate. It's, uh, it's not easy and not everyone can, uh, you know, has the willpower and continued growth mm-hmm. to take on something like that. It's, it's, it's very full on. So big props to you, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, that, that means a lot. And I love hearing from people that were raised by a step parent as well, because, um, you know, the most, most of the people I talked to that say, you know, I had a stepdad in my life who, who was my main male role model and he, you know, he did what my real father couldn't do or wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I hope that one day my little guy, you know, he can say the same thing. So that, mm. that, that, that brings me a lot of hope. Yeah. Awesome. I was, yeah. uh, you know, I really would love to get into your experience with, uh, drugs and alcohol and your 12 years sober there, which, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank can, you. can you somewhat start from the, um, Give us a brief, brief experience with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> when I was growing up, uh, I was um, I was in a in a a fairly abusive household, um, and not so much physical all the time. Yes, there was physical abuse in the house, but um, there was a lot of emotional abuse. Um, my mom was very unstable, still is, struggles with her mental health um, deeply, and. Um, and my father was a business guy. He was kind of on the road a lot. And, um, you know, I, I was raised by other people, uh, you know, like nannies and, and, and that sort of thing or, or aunts and uncles. And and um, I always felt like my household was very like I was walking on eggshells. I never knew what version of my parents I was going to get. And um, I I always was looking for an escape from my current reality. And so early in life, I found an escape in music and skateboarding and and things that I could do on my own. And I, I always had my headphones in and my skateboard with me or a guitar with me. I, I loved, you know, I got really into punk rock and hardcore and, um, I loved the, I loved the chaos of it. Mm. And I loved the, uh, like kind of getting lost in my imagination with music and, and that sort of thing. And, um, that kept me, that kept me kind of happy for a long time because I found it hard to, to make friends and keep friends as a, as a child, because, you know, I was, um, I wasn't able to have friends over at the house because I, I didn't know, I didn't know what version of my parents, uh, mainly my mother that was going to come out. And, uh, you know, I didn't want anybody else to have to see what was going on or, or be part of what was actually going on. And my family was a very, I call it like a don't ask, don't tell type of family where, and everything that happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Yeah. And, you know, it's nobody else's business and we'll it's keep up appearances. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I was always, you know, I was, I, I, I think I learned at a young age to keep my, my, to keep secrets. 
and and uh you know, I had an experience. I was I was um, sexually abused by a female caregiver when I was seven years old, and um, my life changed at that point. And um, you know, I think I was thrust into uh, an adult world as a child, not really knowing what happened to me, not really understanding it, and also again having to keep that secret because I was told this is, you know, this is only between us. Nobody else can know about this. So. Um, the moment that I found, so I, I used music and, and skateboarding mm-hmm. and that sort of thing as a, yeah. as a, an outlet or as a, Safe an escape, place. but exactly. Um, but as a lot of us do, you know, like the moment we find alcohol, you know, with my, with that first sip of alcohol, my, my fears, my anxieties, my depression, my, all my secrets and everything was washed away. And, um, you know, that first time, the first night that I drank, I think I was about 13 years old and I drank to complete oblivion, blackout, like complete blackout. Um, and I've never known how to drink differently. I I always drank for the effect. Um, I always drank for, uh, like to, to escape. I I didn't care for the taste of alcohol. It was just, you know, the effect. And so what I did notice when I, um, when I got blackout drunk that first night is that, you know, I woke up the next day and I had a lot of friends around me and people that actually cared and people, I had a group of people that wanted to invite me to another party. Um, they were checking all those boxes for me that, um, that I hadn't had checked previous, you know, I was, cause I was looking for acceptance. I was truly, I was looking for love. Yeah. I was looking for friends and, you know, um, these people accepted me They they, they, sort of took me in as one of their own and I was invited to every party after that. Um, they were telling me, they'd tell me stories that I didn't remember cause I was blacked out, but yeah. they seemed to think it was great. Yeah. And of course, you know, drugs came into play after that. And I, you know, by the time I was 16, um, I was a, a daily drinker, um, and, and, uh, like a heavy cocaine user. Wow. <clears throat> um, and I started to notice that, you know, my friends that, thought it was funny at first started to kind of keep their distance away from me a little bit. And they realized, I, I kind of realized that I was more of a liability than a, than, you know, than anything mm-hmm. around my friends. Like the people that used to be excited would, you know, when I came into a party kind of rolled their eyes when I walk in after a oh, while, you're okay. like, oh, he's here. Yeah. here he is again, you know, like what kind of bullshit is he going to bring to the party this time? Yeah, right. Um, Were you still going so, to school at this around this time? I was, but you know, at, at 17 years old, I dropped out. Um, I had an opportunity to move out to New Zealand. Wow. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I went out to New Zealand, um, to stay with, uh, a friend of the family. And, um, my idea was I'm going to, I'm going to go find some work, reinvent myself. I'll be, I won't be Chris the alcoholic or the drug addict. I'll just be Chris. And of course, I didn't change anything about myself. I just went to the other side of the earth. I brought all my problems with me. Yeah, I found people okay. that were just like me. And, um, you know, and I noticed that the drinking culture in New Zealand was a lot heavier than it was here at home. Yeah. Yeah, sure, really. you know, and yeah, lots of violence, lots of, lots of alcohol abuse. And I loved it. And, you know, and I, and I, I, I you know, I, I found people that were just like me and, and, um, I didn't last too long out there. I, I think I came home after about three months cause I was getting into too much trouble. Um, oh, and 
Yeah, it was um so it was kind of my my idea that I would like reinvent myself, but I you know, they they always say like you can you can't outrun your addiction um because you take yourself with you know, you take your problems with you. Yeah, yeah. Um so when I came home, I ended up going back to school. Um, I did graduate. Uh, it took me more years than it should have, but I graduated. Um, and then I went, I moved down to the Caribbean. Um, and same story, same, you know, it was always the same story with me. I'd run to another city, run to another continent, another country. And I just keep getting into more shit, more shit. And years went on and, um, you know, I, I was introduced at 22 years old to, uh, to the, to the rooms of recovery, like Alcoholics Anonymous, um, from a coworker that had seen me suffering. And, um, I, he caught me at a really low point in my life and he offered me help. I didn't take it right away, but, um, I found myself in a really desperate place, um, with nobody else around me. Like it, it got so bad that, you know, I was, a, I became an IV drug user. Um, I didn't have a lot of people around me um, and I would, I would, I would go from friend group to friend group, kind of like a chameleon. You know, I had certain friends that did certain drugs and I'd do that with them. And then I move over to another friend group that did other drugs. And I was just, I was trying to please everybody, but also trying to stay numb as long as I could. And uh, I ended up at a point where, I just hated myself. I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep up the sort of the charade any longer. And I called this guy for some help and he brought me to, he brought me to some meetings. Um, and I liked it. I liked what, what the people had to say, but I wasn't ready yet. I was 22 years old and I thought, um, no, like I looked at, I looked at all the people in these meetings and I said like, you know, they all had gray hair or they had stories like, you know, I, I, I was eating out of a dumpster. I was doing, you know, uh, I just finished doing, you know, X amount of years in, in prison. Um, my wife left me. I got fired from my job. And none of those things had happened to me. And I and I and I would say that to people and they say, it just hasn't happened to you yet. If you keep drinking and using the way you are, it will happen to you. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't believe them. So I went out and relapsed and I went on for 10 more years, uh, you know, relapse after relapse. And eventually all those things would happen to me. Mm. Um, and so they, they, they were right. And, um, yeah. And how was this affecting your work life as well? Uh, okay. So that, that's an interesting thing because, um, you know, I got hired to the fire department when I was 23 and, um, I, uh, I was a, I was a, a mess, but I was really, you know, I, like I had mentioned, I could be a bit of a chameleon. So, um, what I wanted to do was when I put on my uniform for work, I wanted to, to play that part. There's another then when I put, yeah. And, I, and, and then when I was off work, I was back to my, you know, drug addict, alcoholic self, um, running wild and like hanging out in crack houses and getting into all sorts of shit with, criminals and it it was bad but these are two polar opposite worlds right and for a brief time i kept the two separate but after a while so what i always say is that in the fire department the culture is that you know 
we drink. Like we drink if we have a, a hard shift. We drink if we have a, a boring shift. We drink if we have, you know, just an okay shift. We're just always drinking. And that's, you know, the, the heavy drinker in the fire department is almost applauded. But yeah, when you cross yeah. that line into the like, alcoholic drinker, you're shunned. Mm. Um, so I thought that I could, I could kind of hover in that heavy drinker. Yeah. yeah, it didn't last too long. Um, but uh, and and people started to notice that I was, you know, I was missing shifts. I was coming in late. I was showing up still under the influence and getting sent home. And you know, it was uh, it was bad. Um, but people back then, they didn't, they didn't want to rat me out to 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 management. So, so there's they a strong just punished kind of me. Strong brotherhood to the to your environment back then. Yeah, it was just it, that that was the culture back then. It was like um, if somebody shows up and he's hungover, you just tell him, okay, just tuck him away somewhere. Say, go sleep it off. Mm drink some coffee afterwards, get, you know, get some food into you, you hide the person. And nobody, something that I really did notice is that nobody was asking me what was wrong. A lot of people were talking about me, but they weren't talking to me. So they'd, they'd say, you know, I'd hear people, I'd hear the grumblings of people saying like, oh, he's a disgrace to the uniform, he's a drug addict, he's an alcoholic. But nobody ever came to me and said, hey, how can we help? Yeah. You know, or do is there a problem or there's a program we could send you to or any of these things? Cause all that stuff is available to us, but um, it so was, do you think it, it was their own insecurities preventing them from um, reaching out to you or was it the, you know, services available at the time? Um, I would say a little bit of both, but I think more so what the first option there that you mentioned is that insecurities. Um, I think when you, when you call somebody out or you question somebody about their habits, you have to have a look at your own. Um, and I know a lot, you know, not many people like to do that, especially if they're kind of hovering in that, you know, they're, they're in that gray area of, you know, I might be doing a little too much. Yeah. And they could be doing the same behind closed doors as well. You, know, and you never know. That's right. Yeah. But it was very much, um, you know, something that somebody told me, uh, one of the senior firefighters, um, when I got hired, he said, if I can give you a piece of advice to carry through your entire career, um, it's this. Never show your weakness around here because we prey on our weak. You know, you get paid well to see the things that you see. Um, this is your job. You chose it. Don't complain about anything. Don't, you know, don't right. they just suck it up and, and kind of be a man. Um, and that was, that was instilled in us early. So we weren't really able to go to somebody and say, hey, man, you know, I think I have a problem. And I, I don't think that it was, I think if somebody were to approach me and say that, their fear would be that they were exposing somebody's weakness. Yeah, okay. Do you know what I mean? So they're still in yeah. there. I can, I can see that. They're still somewhat looking out for them. Well, they, well that was their perception of um, not saying anything. And then, you know, it doesn't exist, doesn't matter, but. Yeah, and they just, you know, they would do things like they would put me at a station that's not busy, that's away from all the, the management, and it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. We've taken care of the problem, but we haven't done anything, right? So yeah. it's, 
it's not a very proactive way to to handle somebody that's dealing with either a mental health issue or an addiction issue. And I was dealing with both for sure. I mean, mm. with addiction always comes, you know, mental health um, issues and problems. And yeah. for me, I had a lot of things happen to me when I was in active addiction. Um, I was involved in a lot of things that a lot of people shouldn't have to be involved or people that aren't drug addicts don't get involved in. Okay. Um, and then through work, um, you know, we're, we're exposed to some things that the, you know, re regular people aren't supposed to see and on a rate on a cr pretty regular basis. Yeah. Um, and they're back then. And like I said, they told us, don't show your weakness and don't talk about it. So instead of talking about it, instead of having a debriefing session or a, um, you know, uh, if I were to say to my coworker, you know, that one didn't sit right with me. Like I, I need to talk about that. It would be like, you're a bitch, you're a pussy, you know, like it would, yeah. it, and it's unfortunate that it was, was like that, but that space for communication wasn't open. Um, and, um, and so instead of talking about things, we just a lot of times drank about it. You know what I mean? We, so we had, we, we, we had a bad call and we saw some things that, Nobody should have to see, and we just drown it with alcohol. And of course, then I I leave the the bar and I go to the crack house after that, and I'm shoot, you know shooting dope in a you know in a, in a crack house or, or whatever for you know four or five days on end. Like it's it got really really ugly um, yeah. to the point where um, you know at work I was really really um, I was I was looked at as quite a liability. I'm lucky to ha to still have my job and I you know I wasn't a good coworker I wasn't a good employee and um I, I was a ter like really uh, you know I'm 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 a public servant and I was a menace to society back then so um it was a really hard place for me to to live because on yeah. one hand I wanted to live up to what my what my job suggested I was but my personal life was just too chaotic to to really, yeah. you know, find that. Place. Did you did you feel that constant contradiction hanging over you? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. And you know, I I had a lot of people that would say to me things like, you know, they'd see me out do acting wild and you know doing things that I really shouldn't. Have, and they said, "Aren't you a firefighter? Like, shouldn't you be? Shouldn't you not be here? Shouldn't you be like?" you know, at home or with a family or something like somewhere other than here. Like even the drug addicts were calling me out on it. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, for me, I, I always use the rooms of recovery, like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. I always use those rooms when things, when people would say things to me or I had a girlfriend that would be like fed up with my bullshit and, and I'd say, no, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. I'm going to go get help. Um, and I'd go into these rooms, and I'd stay for two or three days, maybe, you know, maybe a week. And then I'd go relapse again. And, you know, and I didn't realize as I was doing that, I was collecting little pieces of recovery oh, to yeah. carry with me. I wasn't accepting it yet, but I was just kind of, it was like seeds were being planted. Yeah, you're putting those reps um, in. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and unknowingly, of course, right? And um, so for me, um, you know, I, 
I always, as I said before, I always compared myself to those people and I said, oh, like it's, I'm not as bad as this guy or I'm not, you know, this, I don't belong here. Mm. And then, you know, it got to a point where, as I said, all those things were happening to me. I was getting thrown in jail. I was getting in a lot of trouble with the law. Um, I was, I, I was just barely hanging on to a job. I had no friends around me, you know, no, no partner that would, you know, put up with me. My family was, you know, keeping their distance. It was really, really, I was in a desperate place. And, um, you know, my last three years of, uh, of drinking and using, I, I tried to commit suicide three times. And, um, and, you know, those, uh, those three attempts that I had, I didn't know, I didn't know that I could get sober and that I could remain sober. I didn't think it was possible for me. I, I always thought that I was, I, that I would screw it up because I always did in the past. History told me that, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it and stick with it. But I needed to, I couldn't live the way I was living anymore. Like, I, it was getting really bad. Like, it got to the point where I, I took down all the mirrors in my house because, you know, I didn't like, I couldn't stand the sight of myself. Um, I have the doors locked and the wind, you know, the shades drawn at all times. And I basically, you know, the only people that showed up to my house were people to drop off drugs. And, you know, I, I was locked in my house for days at a time doing drugs by myself and yeah um did you feel like you up- had more you know in internal voices beating you down opposed to external for sure uh yeah the the biggest battle was up here in my head um i had people i you know surprisingly when i look back now i had people that were rooting for me but i wasn't letting them in you know what i mean like they'd say things or they'd send me a message or they did they'd show themselves but i wasn't ready to accept them um i think a lot of people and what i did find when i finally did get sober that a lot of people did want me to succeed they wanted me to do well i just wasn't there yet i wasn't at that point where i could believe in myself enough i wasn't at the point where i was I was desperate enough to get sober, but I didn't believe in myself enough to stay sober. Yeah, gotcha. So, yeah. So, w- one, and, and yes, the, you know, the, the internal voices and the internal, the self-talk was so negative. It was a uh, victim mentality. I was like, um, you know, it was poor me. It, it, it's, it, it's everybody else's fault that I'm like this. It's my environment. It's my friends. It's my upbringing. It's, yeah. you know, whatever, anything but me. Mm. That was my, my thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so hard done by. Yeah. But well, those are still massive contributing factors, though, that, you know, not only yourself, but everyone goes through in life. They do. You're right. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's up to the person. I mean, do you get carried away with those thoughts and do you believe them? Do you, yeah, or do you well, feed into them? Or do how you... long do you keep telling yourself the same story? For sure. And, and I told myself that for years. So I was 22 when I first, you know, went into that first AA meeting. And, and then when I was 32, so 10 years later, I woke up one day and I, and I had plans to commit suicide. And I thought this is going to be my fourth and final time. I'm going to do it right. And um, I was writing down on a piece of paper because I had tried for three days. I was, I was 
doing drugs and drinking for three days and I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't get high. And I thought to myself, my God, my medicine has stopped working. I don't, I can't live like that. I can't, I can't deal with reality. So I wanted to, you know, I, I just wanted to leave this earth. And, um, as I was writing down ways that I could do it on a piece of paper, um, I was just hit by a, like a wave of emotions that went over me. And as I said, all those seeds that were planted as I, when I went into those recovery rooms to appease other people and to, you know what I mean? To, to, to take, get the heat off me or whatever. Band-aid fixes. Um, yeah. All those things suddenly rushed into my mind and they all sort of made sense. And I thought I just dropped the pen and I said, I got to stop writing this. I'm not, you know, I was, I was kind of at a crossroads. Like I, I can, I can choose to commit suicide or I can go the other way, which is choose to change my life around completely and actually surrender to my addictions and say, cause I had never said to anybody, I need help. Yeah, wow. Cause that, you know what I mean? And that, so, cause to me that would make me weak mm. in my mind at the time. Now today I know that that's the strongest thing anyone can say. Big that's the, you know what I mean? To, that is the that's a superpower to be able to say I need help. Yeah. Um, but I went to the same meeting that I had gone into for all those years, and um, a lot of the same people were there. And I, you know, they shook my hand when I walked in, and I just the first person that shook my hand, I didn't let go of it. I bawled my eyes out. I cried. I had never cried in in front of people for since a child. And these people were so kind. They let me cry. They let me tell my story. They let. I said, you know, just a few hours ago, I was ready to, to end it all, and I'm here instead. And after that, and I, I said, I need your help. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to live my own life, and I need. I need somebody's help. I need to be shown how to live because, the way I try, the way I've been doing it, I always. I always land in a deep dark hole that I can't get out of by myself. Yeah. And, um, what, you know, and it was that simple asking for help. And as soon as I did, I had 30 people in that room handing me their phone numbers saying anything you need. If you need a ride, if you need help with anything, just if you want a friend, we go out for coffee. I'll take you to a meeting. We can talk recovery. What, whatever you need, you call me. And they, they were the type of people that did pick up the phone when you called yeah, and they did follow through with their plans. So um, for me, that was the first time that I felt, um, I felt confident that I had a chance in life Yeah. and these people were going to help me and, and they really, really did, you know, and from that point on, I changed my attitude about life, about work, about my relationships about myself of course with the help of all these people i i i learned how to how to be humble enough to to even go into work and say to some of the guys you know at the time i was on the job for you know eight or ten years and i i was going to some of the new guys and saying hey man uh you know i know i'm 10 years senior to you but can you teach me how to do these simple things because i wasn't very present when i and so I built myself up from the ground, from the ground up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, professionally and personally. Yeah, yeah. So this was this was this sounds like a scorched earth moment for you 
it's just yeah now or never kind of thing for sure yeah. and and the more work i did on myself and the more um the more i was able to open up and sort of like peel back the 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 next layer of the onion the better i felt and the more confident i became and the more people started to like filter back into my life and they weren't you know they weren't the people that were trying to pull me down and say come on let's go to the bar yeah they were just good people that wanted to see me do well and they were happy that i was finally like out of that you know that that 20 year sort of hole that i was yeah. that i dug myself well i mean that's that's the um, qualities of a true friend or you know someone close mm-hmm. to you you know seeing that potential in you and saying no i'm, I'm still here for you mate you know we 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 knew we had to wait for you to be ready and present for it. Yeah. Yeah. What what Absolutely. was some of the what's something about sobriety and recovery that's a common misconception? Uh yeah, I think one of the biggest uh misconceptions is that um that people in recovery don't have fun. Um you know, I think that um a lot of people a lot of people they they think that um, when you're not, you know, because the drinking culture, I think, I mean, in North America and, and where you are as well, I mean, it's just so, it's just so accepted and, and um, really worldwide, I guess, right? I think that people assume if you're not drinking that you're not going to be any fun um, and that, uh, that they don't maybe have anything in common with you. Um, for me, I found it quite the opposite. I've, I've found like, you know, the people that I, that I've met in recovery to be some of the, the most fun people that I've, that I could possibly be around. They're yeah. up for anything. Um, you know, I got a, a, a group of friends that we ride motorcycles together. Um, you know, a bunch of guys that fight with me, like, you know, with boxing and Muay Thai and that sort of thing. And like, these are all super fun things that we do that we're finally able to do because we're healthy enough to, uh, yeah. to do it. Uh, something else that I, I think people might think is that um, they can't ha- they can't have a drink around somebody who's in recovery or have, who's oh, yeah. sober. Um, and I've run into this a lot where people will say, "Oh, you know," and it's it's this the thought is wonderful. They say, "Out of respect to you, I'm not going to order a drink." And I always say, "Listen, like I'm have like I'm the one with the problem. You don't have a problem, so it doesn't bother me if you have a drink." I'm not going to be, you know, and, and I certainly wouldn't suggest that for anyone in early recovery, but for me at this point, and you know, um, I don't make a habit of hanging out in bars, but if I go out for lunch with a friend and they want to order a beer with their lunch, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to hurt my feelings. It's not going to, I'm not going to relapse because I've watched somebody drink a beer. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, a lot of people, um, and I think one other one other misconception for people that might be thinking about recovery and, you know, um, they might be questioning, do I have a problem and should I go to a meeting or not? I think a lot of people worry about what are, what are people going to think? Oh, if I go to a meeting, I'm admitting I'm an alcoholic or an addict. Um, what if I see somebody there? I can't go in my, you know, in my neighborhood because people will see me there and, you know, if you walk into a meeting and I'm in that meeting, I'm, I'm one of you, you know, you're, you know, you're, I'm, I, you're in the, I'm in the club too. Yeah. So 
I don't, I think, I think very highly of you. And in my experience, um, the other people in my life, um, you know, when I'd say I need to go to treatment or I need to go to a meeting, um, I was always, I was always congratulated or told, uh, you know, good for you. Um, you have, you're, you're a strong person for doing that. And, um, you know, and I think that's, that's a big thing. Uh, I kind of touched on it before, like admitting you have a problem and asking for help is not a weakness. That's the biggest strength that you have. And staying in that cycle and staying in that problem, knowing that you have a problem and knowing that there's help out there, that is the weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I like it's that it kind of links back to that victim mentality but if someone's going through uh you know mental health problems and you know severe addiction you don't want to beat them all down as well it's a but i guess it comes it has to come from them right that behavior change absolutely um and that's that's something i will say to you know it's really difficult for family members or or the loved ones of alcoholics and addicts because Mm. it's like you're watching this train wreck and you're just waiting for them to get to that point of yeah, it's heartbreaking. of surrender. It's unfair to it's you know it, it's really a, a quite a difficult thing to watch. Um, but it's like uh, you know the the old saying like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing. You can yeah. give me all the resources and the opportunities and tell me okay, there's meetings here. You can go to treatment. You can you know there's an employee assistance program, but. I'm the one who has to pick up the phone and call. I'm the one who has to walk through the door to the meeting and I'm the one who has to participate in it. So if I don't truly believe that I need it and, and if I'm not desperate enough to, to do the work because sobriety, it, it requires hard, hard work and deep work on yourself. Yeah. It's like, you know, you you really have to do a lot of digging um, into your past into your childhood. Um, there's a lot of therapy that goes hand in hand with it. And, um, that stuff is not easy to do, but in, in all that work, the alcoholic or the addict will find the most freedom they've ever found in their life. Yeah. I love that. Um, and, and, and one of the big things I found was, um, you know, everybody knows like in it, about the like 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever. And they all, they all talk about the, you know, oh, what about that step where you have to go and apologize to everybody and you have to make amends to people that you've harmed? Um, that, that for for a lot of people and myself as uh, included, um, before I before I actually did that work, I found that to be the most terrifying thing I could think of, having to go and apologize for all the wrong things that I've done and all the people that I have harmed. Yeah, I thought there's no way. There's no way I can compile a list. It's too way too long, and I don't want to face ninety percent of those people. Don't want to see me ever again. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's how, how does how do you how do you deal with that within yourself? Because um, uh, you know, you it's it's almost a, an emotional release from you, and it's an emotional backpack being taken off you, not them, right? Yeah. So is I I find there's could be a potential element of guilt, right? Like why, mm-hmm. why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be better for someone to hold on to those apologies? Because it's just giving, 
you the um, release, not the other person who's already had all the damage being done to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so you how do you fight that battle of um, you know guilt and consciousness? Well, um, there's like a, a little caveat in that step that says, um, so you have to be willing to make amends to the people that you've harmed unless it would do further harm to that person. So if I, um, for an example, you know, if I, if I was dating a girl for years and I, and I was unfaithful and I cheated on her multiple times and she was unaware and now she's living, you know, she's married, got a family, living a happy life most likely doesn't think about me once in her day. Um, for me to go to her and say, hey, let me interrupt your great life right now and tell you all the shit things I did to you yeah. would do harm to her because it's like, yes, you're unloading it, but you're giving it to her and you're, and you're now making her feel like, oh, well, how could I, how could I have been a part of that? Or, or why did I let that happen? Or why, did, why didn't I see that? So that would fall under that, that, caveat of gotcha. that would do harm to somebody else so in that case um the move or the step there is to um, it's called it's called a living amends so that means that in order to make up for the bad thing you did i.e like so with the the cheating would be moving forward in my life any relationship that i have i'm a hundred percent faithful and gotcha. and that's my living amends so from here Moving forward, I will never do that thing again because I've learned, um, I've learned that my part in that was horrible and I, I harmed another person. But yeah, okay, so it comes comes down give... to that behavior change, yeah, within yourself to to carry on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, but I mean, for the most part, I was I was always met with, uh, um, you know, some people told me to get lost that they never want to see me again, and that's fine. And I understand, and I have to be okay mm. with that. But yeah, sure. a lot of the people that I expected to, to, you know, not accept it, ended up saying, you know, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, and and how can I how can I be a part of your recovery? And how can I help? Like, how can I help you from here? Because I I never thought that I never thought I'd talk to you again, or I never thought that I'd ever receive an apology. So something wow. must have, have changed. And you know, through that process, I've 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 managed. Um, I've managed to like form some pretty amazing relationships and, you know, get some people in my life that I thought, you know, never wanted to see me again. I thought I, they had written me off for good. So, yeah, yeah. um, there's been a lot of positive things happen because I was willing to take that step. And yeah, and, yeah so awesome. it, it was really, it's, it's really been quite a, an impactful process. Mm. And, you know, in regards to recovery, do you think, um, this is probably going to be, the same answer but do you think what's what's more effective working with someone in a private one-on-one -on -one setting or you know the group setting i think that um we need both so uh the group setting is um is really really helpful because it helps the drug addict or the alcoholic um realize that they're not alone that we all share the same emotions and you know something that i said before you know i talked about saying like oh that hasn't happened to me and i haven't gone to that low yet it's not about it's not about the things that happen to us it's about the emotions that we experienced and anybody who's got an addiction has felt those same emotions in one way shape or form 
Um, so I think that that the group setting is wonderful to be able to relate to a, a group of people and feel part of. So I think it's very important to have that fellowship. Yeah. Um, now the one-on-one setting, that would be like in a, a mentor or a sponsor type relationship where sitting down, you can really open up with somebody. And you, for me, what I found with the one-on-one setting, whether that's with a, a, a like a, a, you know, proper counselor or just a, a mentor in recovery, a sponsor, that sort of thing, you build a relationship um, where trust is the, the number one component. So you're able to open up and, and that's the person that really helps you dig deep on your, on your, um, on your past because, you know, it's kind of a give and take situation where I can talk to a mentor about some things that have happened to me. And I know that I have no fear of judgment from, from him because he'll come right back to me and say, you know what, something very similar happened to me and this is, you know, and so we, it's almost like you trade stories and you, you build a, you build a real solid relationship with somebody and that's the person that you can call when things aren't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. things just don't feel right. Um, so I think that the, the both are extremely important. And I think that to live a balanced life in recovery, um, we need to have the fellowship component and the one-on-one component. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, rolling out of that, how did you get into becoming a, a, you know, somewhat recovery coach and facilitator yourself? Um, so for me, I, I started to, um, I started to, you know, sponsor people and I, I realized that, you know, I, I really loved being a part of people's life, like the changes in their life. And, um, I realized that it was a, a pretty, you know, an alcohol, one alcoholic to another speaking, you know, we have so much in common and, um, our lives mirror, mirror each other so much. And, you know, to help somebody get over those hurdles that I had come over and that at one point seemed insurmountable to me. Um, it was like, it was like throwing a, uh, throwing a life vest to somebody who was drowning. You know what I mean? And, it gave back so much to me. Um, so I started taking courses and what I, what I really enjoyed doing at that time was um, I was, uh, and I still, I still do this. I go into the correctional facilities and the prisons and jails here. And um, I tell my story and, uh, and I, and I kind of mentor, mentor the guys in there, the incarcerated guys. And, you know, that was where I felt I could give back the most. Um, I felt I could, could make the biggest impact and then I started to branch out and I started to do like public speaking and tell my story on a, on, you know, to different businesses to, and then I kind of focused on um, emergency service. So police, fire, ambulance, and military, um, because, you know, the, we have such a high rate of addiction in, in our, in our professions. Um, and, and then, you know, I just over time started collecting courses and I got, you know, deeper and deeper into this and, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I started to really enjoy it and, um, it just became a passion for me. And, and, uh, you know, I, my wife and I now, like we facilitate, um, uh, a Buddhist based, uh, recovery meeting. 
Uh, it's called Refuge Recovery, and um, it's uh, it's kind of a marriage between Buddhism and uh, a twelve step program. So okay. um, it, it kind of fits for people who aren't. Um, so myself, I'm not a I'm not a religious person per se. So like a lot of the twelve step meetings are very. Uh, the language is very. Uh, there's a lot of talk about God, and okay, and, biblical, and it's yeah. it's a very. It's a religion. Um, um, influenced program. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I, you know, I, when I started traveling to Asia, like I was going to Thailand a lot for, for Muay Thai. Um, and that was something I found in recovery that was like super exciting, dangerous enough that it still gave me the thrill of like <laughs> drugs right. and alcohol. Get the heart right off. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, and so I started to travel there and I started to talk with the monks and actually spend time in the monasteries and, and kind of like dive a little deeper into like Buddhist uh, principles. And that for some reason just sat right with me. So, um, so now the, the group that we, that we facilitate is a, a Buddhist based recovery group. And so it's meditation heavy, it's mindfulness heavy. Um, but it also follows like you still go through those, that same process of self discovery and um yeah and and learning like really truly learning about empathy and compassion for other people mm -hmm. um because like in in active addiction we're so selfish and self-centered um we don't care about anybody else but us and that's something we really have to unlearn when we find recovery so i, fi I found that yeah that so the, the 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 mindfulness and meditation components um, really helped me sort of like settle into that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where we landed, and yeah, and that's um, how we how we really really love to give back now. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And yeah. you know, I don't want to disrespect the the courage and the effort involved in recovery and you know climbing yourself out of addiction, but within your experience, you know, working with defense personnel and public servants and you know men in correctional facilities, what's mm -hmm. the What's the what's the current trend here? Why why is this happening? Why 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 are the rates so high? Yeah, yeah. Um. So for for uh, people in in the correctional facilities, um, I would say ninety percent of the people that that end up there, or maybe more, end up, you know, in prison for something that they did while under the influence. Um, and, and, and that, um, you know, and then when they're, when they're behind bars too, there's access to, to things there. And it's just, you know, part of, part of, you know, I think maybe living with some of the guilt about things that they had done. Um, that's, that's a lot of what I hear when I talk to some of the guys in there is that, you know, I, the thing happened, you know, the thing, the crime happened when I was under the influence and I don't know how to, it, it, I can't reconcile with it. Yeah, okay. So now I'm using while I'm, while I'm in jail yeah, now yeah. in emergency services and, and military. Um, I think a lot of it is um, it's, it's PTSD related. So we're, um, we're, we're using substances to mask our, 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 um, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, uh, like condition, I don't know, like our, our, um, 
symptoms. Gotcha. You know, the symptoms that we have from from seeing some of the things that we that we see, um, especially you know, like military. Uh, it's 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 really really difficult, um, especially if you're an active military member that's you know had to see some of the things that yeah. civilians always, aren't supposed to. On. Yeah. yeah, and it's tough to. Um, I really really think that it's um, in in those type of professions. It's really tough to switch on and off, you know, to go from like high alert uh, while you're on duty for 12 or 24 hours to like back home with the family and to relax. And so it's yeah. it's this thing where we, we, we end up in this state of hypervigilance and we don't know how to relax without substances. Mm. And uh, so that's the trend that I see. Uh, a lot of it is is masking masking the symptoms of of our mental health yeah yeah, yeah well said what is mm-hmm. it um actually if you could tell your 18 year old self something what would that be um you know what i would love to to i would love to just grab that 18 year old like by the shoulders shake him a little and say you don't have to live this way any longer there's a way out. Um, and, and, you know, and I, because for so, for so long when I was, um, in the throes of active addiction, I didn't believe anybody lived any other way. Like I was so, I had brainwashed myself so much to think that even people that were going to work on their nine to five jobs and that sort of thing, I thought there's no way they're not you know, they don't have a bottle in the car or they don't have like yeah, a bag yeah. of something. And, you know, I just thought that that's the way the world worked. And, you know, I'd love to, I'd love, I would have loved for somebody to offer me an escape or not an escape. That's the wrong word. I was already seeking an escape, a solution back then yeah. and a real solution. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, how has Muay Thai and boxing influenced you? To becoming part of that solution. Um, well, if I, I kind of touched on it earlier, I mean, when I got sober, I was looking for something that would excite me enough uh, to kind of give me the the thrill of you know that I that I got while I was you know out there doing drugs and drinking um, yeah. and committing crimes. <laughs> so you know, getting punched and kicked in the face kind of checked that box. Um, yeah. And, and so for me, um, that was an exciting thing to get into. Also, um, I found that like um, those sports taught me that physically I was I was more capable than I ever thought that I could be. Um, that physically my body could in- endure things and and go through things that I never thought possible. And that became a little bit addictive to me. And you know, to be able to, to, to do better. It, it, it was a challenge that, you know, I needed to, I needed to run longer. Or I needed to, you know, spar for an extra round or I needed to, you know, do these, I needed to hit these benchmarks and it really gave me structure. Um, and I also needed to change my diet and change my, yeah. my, my habits, um, my sleep. I had to worry about that. Like everything changed as a result of these sports. And, um, 
And I was, I'm, I'm not, I'm by, by no means, you know, like I, I fight, but I, I'm not, I don't get paid to do it. It's a, it's a passion. It's just a fun thing. Um, and, but it, it has taught me so much and it, it's given back so much to me, um, in that, like having structure, um, having coaches in my life that actually cared about me. Um, that was a really big thing. I wasn't a team sports player when I was a kid. I like I rode around on my skateboard and you know I I was I didn't play organized sports I didn't I didn't know what having a coach was all about okay. so when I got coaches in that it was like another person that I could look up to it was like another mentor but not a recovery mentor it was it was a a sports mentor but also they serve as a life mentor too because like everything that everything that fighting is can be related back to you know, something we do in life. Right. So, um, I found it was very translatable to, to my life. And, um, you know, I took a lot of the lessons that my coaches had, had taught me good and bad, um, into my life. And, and, and I've learned so much about myself and, um, it's given me opportunities to travel. Uh, you know, I have, yeah, I mean, like traveling is great when you're just going for a vacation and relaxing, but I, I don't do that. Like my wife fights too. So we we travel um, we travel to go train yeah, or to yeah. go fight. And like yeah. it gives purpose to our trips, you know. And, um, do you guys spar each other? Yeah, we do, but we stopped because um, we get too, uh, we get too like passionate yeah. and, um, and it gets too emotional when we spar. Okay. And also my wife is a beast. Like she is really good yeah. and she is a strong girl. Um, she's also sober. She celebrates 11 years sober today. Actually. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. 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 Um, so she's, she is, and that's another thing I'll mention that, um, you know, in, 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 in meeting her, uh, another person in recovery and uh, a person who's very active in her recovery, who takes, you know, who does the same sports, has the same interests as me. Um, she's a, a, a real supporter of mine and we were, we're supporters of each other, of course, but um, having somebody like that living under your roof means that I always have a, like, I always have a, a kind, compassionate ear if I need, if, if I need to talk mm. she and she doesn't judge your me. Best version. Yeah. And vice versa. Right. So we, we we do that for each other. And um, it's a, it's a relationship like I never thought I'd have. And, you know, we met, we met each other at a, a very odd time in both of our lives. And, um, it was the right time, but it was an odd time for both of us. And, uh, um, the fact that we were both sober and that we were both into Muay Thai at the time, we're like these, that, that just locked it in and, yeah, and so good. Now we, could, we could do everything together, you know, like we, and yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's really, and then, you know, her, her, her son came with her. And that's, like I said before, I mean, he's been a blessing in my life. And that kid teaches me more than anybody, than any adult ever teaches me. Just talking to him and watching him grow teaches me so much about myself. Um, so that's a huge pleasure as well. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, as you are now, how would you hope that your you know, wife and friends and family describe you now as a man? Um, my hope is that I would be described as somebody who's open and honest, uh, caring and compassionate. Um, and that, uh, 
that I'm I'm somebody. My hope is that I would be described as somebody that could be counted on no matter what. Um, and and yeah, I think that's you know, and the the kind, compassionate piece is is really big. And and as I said too, though, like open and honest because there's there's not enough men like. There's not enough men who can honestly talk about their emotions without fear of judgment. Yeah. Um, we need to change that narrative, right? Like, yeah, I think that massive issue. That's yeah, and 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 the really interesting thing is, um, you know, when I started doing this podcast, I, I started to really like connect with a lot of people that are so like-minded, and um, you know, and, and in fact, like. The, the the main group of people that I've talked to that I've gotten really close with uh, and have been able to share like this, these like very vulnerable open stories with have been from New- Australia, New Zealand. Oh, wow. And Interesting. Yeah. It's been really, really cool. And, and so like meeting some, meeting some of these men who, who, who are able to, you know, willing and able to talk about the things that most people aren't, yeah. most men aren't, yeah. you know, yeah, it's been out. really cool. Yeah, shout out Richie Hardcore yeah. as well. He's doing some amazing work in New Zealand. Yeah, man, and that's worldwide. my boy. Yeah, yeah man, sure. he's he's awesome. He was my first interview. Oh wow! He's uh, yeah, yeah. He's um, yeah. He's a he's an amazing, an amazing wealth of knowledge. Yeah, big time. Yeah, a, a super yeah. generous online as well with all his information and experiences and vulnerabilities. So yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, awesome role model for for young men and boys to look up to for sure that's for sure i think that i think that um yeah i i don't know i don't know if it's just the people i've been connecting with or whatever but it seems like the, the something in that the water right? the is that <laughs> something in the water down here <laughs> i think so you guys seem to have a, a, a everybody everybody's connected in that world everybody seems real tight with each other and every time i do an interview with somebody um, they're like, okay, here's four other people you got to connect with, and I'm going to put them with you, and you got to awesome. interview them because they're amazing people with amazing stories, and yeah. really cool to see everybody supporting each other like that. Sure, yeah, has to happen from very, the ground very up. Cool. Well, yeah, man. we'll wrap it up there, Chris. But um, man, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been awesome to hear. Uh, anyone who's listening, please follow me on uh, at the Perfect Man Podcast on Instagram. And uh, Chris, please let our listeners know where we can find you online too. Yeah, sure. So my personal Instagram is underscore Chris underscore how underscore um, lots of underscores. But uh, and then if you want to check out the podcast uh, on Instagram, uh, it's just at authentic adversity. Uh, You can find it on YouTube, Spotify video, uh, any of the listing platforms platforms it's just uh, the authentic adversity podcast on all those and um yeah i mean if anybody wants to check out uh check out the podcast i really appreciate uh you know uh the comments section you know i always i always like to know the feedback of like you know how people felt about the interviews and that sort of thing it's, it's really important as big you know time. Big time, yeah. yeah awesome yeah, oh thanks so much for coming on man appreciate you I really appreciate you asking me and it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Cheers.